everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with uh, Lisa Bildy. Lisa is a lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom in Canada. Um, she's focusing mainly on civil liberties and she was the person I believe we spearheaded the STOP uh, SOP, which was the statements of principles that the Law Society had put in, which was kind of like a quasi-social justice stuff. All right, Lisa, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So yeah, so you, so I mean, I, I think we both follow James Lindsay and that's how I kind of got to know you on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, and you're doing something that's, you know, like I really, you know, it's like any dog I've had at any fight, it's basically like free speech or freedom of expression. So what you're doing kind of like, you know, uh, it, it kind of lines up with what I think about. So if you want to, like, how did you get started in this? Uh, you know, where'd you come from it? And then we can go from there. Sure, absolutely. Well, it, you know, I think I probably had a bit of a weird uh, background for a lawyer. I, uh, I was a, a trial lawyer for a number of years. I did personal injury and family law and that sort of thing. And then, uh, you know, just a very career-oriented woman, um, working my way to the top of the heap. And then all of a sudden I had kids and had a paradigm shift. So, um, and then strangely enough, this was completely out of character. I ended up staying home with them. Um, and then school wasn't a great fit for various reasons, so I ended up homeschooling. So I was away from practice for a number of years. And as the kids got a bit more independent with their studies, um, I had time to kind of watch the social justice, the, the culture wars unfold. And, you know, started to see patterns and get kind of intrigued with the topic. And um, it still sort of felt like it was all just uh, on Twitter and nowhere else. Uh, but as I was gearing up to a return to practice, and this was about 2017, um, it sort of did hit home on a very personal level. Uh, the Law Society, I started paying more attention to what the Law Society of Ontario was doing. And by the way, just for listeners who may not be uh, in Ontario, this is the regulatory body for the legal profession in our province. And there are about 52,000 lawyers uh, and we're all regulated by this this body. It uh, decides whether we're we're competent to be lawyers. Um, it decides whether we get to have our licenses to practice. So they have a lot of, of power over the profession. So is is it like kind of like the equivalent like of a bar association in the states? I I think it's a little bit more. It's more regulatory. Uh, the bar mm -hmm. associations I think in the states tend to not regulate the profession. They are more of a um, you know of a professional um, lobby group maybe or. Um, they bring lawyers together, but they but they don't necessarily regulate them. It, that could be different in some states. I'm not entirely sure, okay. but certainly in Ontario, they have this this, this role as um, um, protecting the public interest by regulating lawyers. So, and they as such, they're they're an arm of the state. They're you know they're uh, given this responsibility by statute, and so um, so that means that our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which kind of keeps the government in check, also applies to the law society as a, as a government agent. So uh, I guess probably about October of 2017, I started paying attention to things coming out of the law society and uh, an email came around which said that uh, we all had to prepare a statement of principles um, expressing our um, obligation to promote equality, diversity and inclusion in all aspects of our practices, our personal lives, even if we were in retirement. And I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. First of all, um, you can govern our conduct, but since when do you get to tell us what, what our principles are? 
I mean, our principles are things that we arrive at, most of us, through years of self-examination and experience and, you know, reflection, and, and we decide what our own principles are. We don't need the law society telling us what they are. So uh, it was around that time that a, a law professor by the name of Bruce Party uh, put a piece in the National Post saying, uh, likening the law society to, to North Korea, basically. Um, and that got people talking a little bit. But, you know, lawyers, we're busy. We don't, we, nobody's paying attention to all these emails coming in from the Law Society, unless you're getting that little white envelope marked personal and confidential, which suggests maybe you've got someone complaining against you. By and large, you're ignoring the Law Society. So uh, people had not been paying attention to this issue really at all till Bruce's article in the, in the National Post. Uh, I saw that. I saw Jordan Peterson and Bruce and uh, a lawyer by the name of Jared Brown do a little talk on uh, sort of a call to arms for the legal profession. And so I, you know, I was uh, already concerned about these issues. So I uh, wrote to a bunch of my still law colleagues that I had. I mean, I wasn't completely out of the profession while I was homeschooling. I was, I was doing a lot of contract work and so on. Um, so I still had contacts and I wrote to them all and I said, I'm very concerned about this. I, I don't think this is the direction the law society should be going in. Um, you know, the, the measure has already passed, but I think we need to speak up about this. And one of my contacts was a, um, uh, what on the, um, Middlesex Law Association. That's the, just a, uh, a group that's uh, of local lawyers basically in my community. And he said, yeah, I'm concerned about this too. Let's, uh, let's have a meeting. So, um, they had a meeting to discuss it, and uh, I, I stood up and spoke. And, and by the way, I should say this is a little out of character. I was not necessarily a, a culture warrior or somebody who liked to rock the boat. <laughs> I mean, it was actually nerve-wracking to stand up. I didn't know what other people were thinking about it. It felt like, you know, there was um, there seems to be this broad consensus that we all have to agree. And I and I knew that it, my opinions would probably be. Um, you know, offensive to some. But also, it's it's the language that it's couched in, right? Um, you know, you're opposed to diversity. You're opposed to inclusion. Like, how can you be opposed to diversity, right? Like, it's, exactly. It's, it's, it's that stuff, and it's. I mean, just a little aside here, like the way that that social justice, or like what uh, James Lindsay is calling now critical social justice, like how it takes the language and a word like diversity no longer means what the common parlance is, right? They've turned it into a jargon and they expect everyone to know what that jargon is and they are assuming everyone uses it as it as it's that jargon. So like, so when you speak out against it, that's this thing like, well, how can you be against diversity? Or if it's the anti-racism, like, don't you want to stop racism? Like it's, you know... Yeah, well, I'm not even sure that they do want us to know what they really mean. I mean, I think that uh, the, the language... Uh, is sort of purposely kind of obfuscating, right? Like, how? yeah, how can you be against, how can you be against uh, equality? Okay, well, but they present it as equality, everybody's, everybody yeah, but they everybody say equity, gets the though. same opportunity. They say but equity. they really mean equity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but they, you know, they're slippery about that, yeah, right? So, yeah, um, so, yeah that, that's a big issue. What do the words actually mean? Um, and most people who aren't really thinking about this or immersed in it all the time hear those words and think, yeah, how can you possibly be opposed? There's sort of a natural inclination to be in favor of those things because they sound nice. Yeah. And so you must be a really horrible person if you have any doubt about this at all. 
Um, anyway, I stood up at this meeting and, and uh, a few other lawyers were concerned too and we ended up meeting together afterwards and we decided we were going to try and alert the rest of the profession to this. Uh, we put together a website. It was a statement of principles, SOP, so we called it, we just, just picked the stupid name, Stop Sop. But honestly, <laughs> over time, over the, over the progression of this movement, it became like it literally was it was a, a website nothing more then it became a community and then it really did become a movement so it was sort of funny it was like a hashtag on twitter and um but at the moment at that early stage it was just an opportunity to to alert people to what was going on so um so we, we got this website put together we put a few articles together on on our concerns some frequently asked questions uh links to some other articles that were starting to be written about it and most importantly, we put together, or we, we added a page where people could publicly state that they were opposed to this because we thought, you know, everybody's out there in their own offices. Nobody knows if other people feel kind of, um, you know, concerned about this. So we figured if a few people spoke up that that might encourage others to do so. Uh, and, and it did to a point. I put my name on there first, by the way, and, and I can remember the feeling of, you know, my my hand hovering over the mouse. Do I click to put my name out there to say I'm opposed to this? It was actually very daunting. And as we learned, uh, a lot of people were were extremely fearful to speak out against this. It was incredibly stifling, um, uh, and you know, nerve wracking for people. And I think by the end of the uh, campaign, we had like 350 people who would put their name out of 52,000 lawyers. So. It, it, anyway, we learned very quickly that that was not going to change the course of history to uh, to have a few lawyers speaking out against it. Um, so we were then about a year out of the next bencher election. Benchers are the the, the quaint name for the uh, governors, basically, of the law society, and they're elected from amongst the profession. So we thought, well, let's put together a slate of candidates who are prepared to stand up against this. So we built this little team, and I, I guess I, because I wasn't fully working yet, uh, I had the time, so I was pulling together people who were reaching out to us, and uh, from that list of 350, it, we, we held a workshop, invited them, and, and managed to cobble together um, a slate of 22 lawyers and one paralegal, and uh, uh, all of whom were agreed that this state, compelled statement of principles had to go. And uh, that... Um, we, you know, we launched a campaign. We, um, we we sent out emails to the profession to try and educate them on the issues, uh, tell them what these words really meant. Um, we took a huge amount of heat and, and blowback. Uh, the hate mail was fast and furious that came back from those emails. It was me dealing with all of that. It was not so fun. Um, we took a lot of abuse on Twitter from people who assumed that we must all be racists and bigots and and just generally horrible people. Uh, it was shocking, actually, because these were lawyers, right? You'd sort of expect that people could have a, a rational discussion. But anyway, what was interesting to me was having come back to the profession after being away from it for a number of years was uh, how all of this has infected the profession so badly that things like evidence, you know, the, the, the foundation of all of this was some report that they had commissioned, uh, which found that there was systemic racism in the profession. And then these initiatives grew from from that. But if you look at the report, you think, wow, uh, there, it, it was poorly done, uh, methodologically unsound, um, very self-selected, you know, uh, very motivated. There was obviously activists working behind the scenes. And it was a tiny number of people who felt that 
that uh, that there must be systemic racism. And on that basis, we did this huge initiative to, to change the entire profession. So, um, you know, I, I thought, well, lawyers are supposed to be all about evidence, but clearly not. Yeah, okay. That's one thing I don't understand, because I came at this from a completely different angle. I got back to Canada in 2014, and that's when I started seeing all this insanity, and I was like, what's going on? And that's when I started looking into this stuff, right? Um, I only really started reading the social justice literature, I guess, in about 2017. Because, um, I mean, I, I didn't know what, what was going on, right? So I was, try, I was like, hit and miss here and there. And, uh, you know, but then when I started reading this stuff, and then, okay, Derek Bell, like, the first paper that, you know, basically they say is, like, the founding thing from critical race theory is... I mean, he's Harvard Law. Mm-hmm. Crenshaw, you know, the basically she had two papers that founded intersectionality, one in '88 or '89, one in like '90 or '91, right? So this all came out of law schools. Yep. And now, obviously, it's become its own their their own fields now and stuff like that. But like, like. I don't know if you've taken a look at the administration of the law society, not so much like the, you know, the members or the, you know, the people who are in the profession or a member of the body, but like the actual, you know, the, the bureaucrats, right? The paper mm-hmm. shufflers. Yeah. Like, are they all like critical race theorists and stuff like that? And like, because you hear their language, right? You hear, uh, if it's technically true, it's still true. You know, and so, you know, I have that saying like, you know, technicalities are the soul of the law, right? I mean, like, I just, I still am trying to figure out that, like, how did it, because I could see like Derek Bell's paper, like the original paper that he wrote. I mean, he brought up some really important issues, and mm-hmm. you know there were some very, very valid points in there. And then how it's being applied is where the problem is, I think. But it's just like, like I can see the justice aspect of it coming from a law school, but just the whole, like you said, getting away from evidence, getting away from, oh, don't engage with that person because he, he you know, he's thinking the wrong way. Like, mm-hmm. how does that come out of a law school? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's. It, uh, I think it's been a very gradual process, and and I don't remember it being. I mean, I went to law school uh, 90, 1990 to ninety three. So, mm. I think I sort of missed all of this stuff, which is why it was sort of shocking to me when I kind of jumped back in later to see how much that had sort of um, sort of permeated through everything. Uh, the law schools are very different now than they used to be, and and. Um, uh, you know, I'm certainly hearing a lot about that now. People are very afraid to speak out. I know James has, James Lindsay has talked about this as being a sort of de facto religion, and it really does feel that way. Um, it's very much an orthodoxy that you you cannot go up against. And so, you know, while there may have been valid criticisms of certain things, and, well, and in the process, though, other very important things are being undermined. I mean, um, there was an article in the Boston College Law Review about 20 years ago, which I just came across when I was uh, getting into all this, because this was all new to me, as I said, so I had to do a lot of uh, catching up. But um, it was a guy by the name of Jeffrey Pyle who wrote about critical race theory and and basically he said that you know it um, it attacks the very foundations of the classical liberal legal order so uh, the idea that every person is equal under and before the law um, legal reasoning uh, rationalism um, the neutral application of principles under the constitution you know th- these things they the critical race theorists um, say are mere social constructs that are supposed to uh, 
you know, they're there only to legitimate white supremacy or something, right? So, so all those foundational things that our that our entire judicial system is rests upon in Western civilization are being attacked. And, you know, so it, it's alarming. It's not just about some lawyers having to swear a statement of principles. I mean, this goes so deep. Oh, yeah, no, no, this stuff, okay. Um, like, it's... The, the, the thing like white ways of knowing, right? And this comes straight out of critical race theory. Um, it also comes out of like post-colonial theory, I think. Um, it's And it's, you know, that science and reason and logic are a white way of knowing and they're not meant for people of color. I mean, it's the same thing that actual racists said that we can't <laughs> teach. The, you know, but, no, but I mean, it's the exact same thing, right? Or... Um, you know, like, okay, I've got in, in front of me, I've got a book called Acting White, and there's a chapter in it about how, how the Obamas weren't really black because they acted white. And to me, that reminds me of, you know, you'd, you'd hear the term uppity, right? Oh, look at him. He's being uppity or she's being, and it was like, oh, they're acting like they're betters. And I'm like, how are you people any better? And then, I mean, the whole thing of, uh, someone sent me this article and it's awesome. It's, and I didn't know about this and. Um, you know, I'd love that this this would be taught in schools. It was about this guy who lived in a cave in Ethiopia around the time of the Enlightenment, right? So as the Enlightenment's going on in Europe, and he's not connected to it, he has no clue about it, but in this cave by himself, he's coming up with ideas similar to Milton and Mill and Paine and Locke, right? So mm-hmm. these are not white ideas. These are universal yeah. ideas. And so all these people who say like, yo, well, they just had it at Stanford, I believe, where they got rid of the classics because it was too white. Mm-hmm. And they're, yo, we, we don't, so instead of going out and finding other literature from that time, like, okay, yo, bring me this guy's writings. I want to read them, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, like the stuff that you're complaining is not there. Go find it, bring it to us. But why get rid of you know, why get rid of history? And it's just like, that's the part that just stuns me the most. Like, I, I, I don't like, there's just, it's mind boggling, like the way they think. And it's, it is religious. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's ISIS blowing up the ruins of Palmyra because it goes against Islam, right? No, get rid of everything from the past because it speaks out against our one true faith now. It's- right. Yeah, no, it is totally. And I mean, you and I are about the same vintage. So, you know, we probably grew up uh, at, a, at a time when, you know, people were actually like, uh, I think kind of following that MLK vision of, you know, yeah. forgetting about all the racial stuff, right? You're just, you're friends with people because they're, because you like them and because and yeah. you think they're decent people, right? That's how I grew up. I exactly. didn't care about what. <laughs> so yeah. it was a weird world to step back in and go, oh, we have to be so conscious of this now. And it actually makes us more divided and more uh, on guard with one another yeah. and suspicious, suspicious of people's motivations. And it's all very unhealthy. And I guess that's the whole point. I mean, the, uh, you know, this is not meant to to uplift us. This is meant to tear things down. And, and you know, um, it's not just, I mean, it's religious, but it also has parallels. Like this, this um, I was reading uh, Vlaclav Havel's piece, The Power of the Powerless, Shopkeepers. So he uses the example of the green grocer putting a sign in the window saying, workers of the world unite. And how, and what that sign meant. And it, and it meant Everybody uh, who had that sign in the window was sending a signal. They were sending a signal to their superiors not to bother them, that they had fallen in line, and it sent the signal to people beneath them that they were, you know, they were virtuous. And and, um, and that's how that statement of principles struck me as well. I mean, it was, there was religious aspects to all of this, but it's also, it's a control thing, right? Like, 
somehow um, the social justice stuff is designed to make everybody fall in line and not question. And when it starts coming from the top, you know, when you start seeing your government um, get falling in line with this kind of stuff too and imposing it and requiring requiring people to have uh, values tests and so on, it really strikes me as parallel to, to what Vaclav Havel was writing about in that piece. Um, you know, we're all putting the workers of the world sign, uh, unite sign in our windows right now. Oh, okay, no, it's it's totally dogmatic. Like that, like okay, religion is dogma, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and I mean the 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 faith like aspect of it is, um, I mean, it's it's just another dogma, and I think they're boring from you know all kinds of it. Like the the faith like aspect to me is, so let's just take uh, intersectional feminism, feminism, right? So mm-hmm. uh, the patriarchy is like the Calvinist idea of total depravity. So the whole system is patriarchal, right? So if you take critical race theory, the whole system is racist. So there's, you know, you're going to be consumed by racism no matter what you do. You have to act in the way which you're fighting it, just like if you're a Calvinist, you have to act like an elect and so that you can be above reproach even though the whole system around you is trying to consume you with sin, Mm-hmm. It, so like that's the race that's the religious aspect of it that that's how i see that part of it but yeah it is a complete dogma it's you know believe the way we believe you have to think this you know you know it's it's like that seinfeld episode where kramer's doing the aids march and he's like why aren't you wearing the ribbon you know like, you're like <laughs> you have to wear the ribbon <laughs> I know, I know. You have to laugh at it. It's the only thing you can do anymore. Yeah, but no, but it's it's nuts. I mean, they 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 don't give you any. They don't give you an edge, and they don't give you a chance to win, right? Um, right. No, that's right. Yeah, uh, and so you're you know you're everybody's having to fall in line with this narrow set of orthodoxies is totally the you know the new religion, and and you're punished immediately if you uh, if you step out of line. So, uh, which we experienced. I mean. Um, you know, if you're if you're wanting to be a principled person and you believe in things like freedom of conscience and and uh, uh, the ability of you know everybody to to act as an individual in in this increasingly collectivist society, you know you're really just you're ostracized, you're called uh, all sorts of names, and this this is what we experienced going through this campaign too. It was uh, you know, and there was a time in my life when I think that would have really uh, shut me up and bothered me, <laughs> but you know, it's, I, I've just kind of crossed that that threshold where it's like, you know what, this stuff doesn't stick with me anymore. I know who I am. I know the kind of person that I've become over many, many years of reflection and growth and you calling me names, you know, it's, it, it doesn't change who I am. And I, so it, it didn't stop us. We just, we marched on. Uh, and that was actually one of the important lessons in all of this that I think other people wanting to push back need to know. And that is, you know what, uh, it's that old adage, sticks and stones, right? May, may break my bones, but you got to just ignore that stuff. You just got to push through. And if you can, if you, if you do push back and, um, you know, you've you got a, actually a ton of people behind you, you don't necessarily know about it until push comes to shove and, they, and they're voting or whatever, but uh, there are a lot of people that you can rally around who are sick of this stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it, the world doesn't end. You get called a bunch of names and, and uh, it's just... It's not the end of the world. Yeah. I mean, okay, yeah, definitely. Like, speak out. Okay. Obviously, it depends on some scale and stuff, too. Um, you know, I think the the more famous you are, it helps and it hurts. Like, you can speak out, but you're going to draw a lot more hate. But, yeah, I mean, like, speak out and stand up for your principles. Like, it's, I, I don't understand why, where that's become a bad thing. Now, stand up for your principles. Be ready to, like, go. You know, I'm not saying take accusations, take you know, attacks, but be ready to defend whatever mm-hmm. your principles are. 
but that's the one thing that strikes me the most. Like, I mean, you know, I left and it was, I disagree with you, but you know, I'll defend your right to say it. And I come back and it's like, I disagree with you and you have to be fired and never work again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, we're like, that's to me that, that strikes me the most. Yeah. Well, I, I, to be fair, there are, there are consequences more for some people than others. And yes, that council culture is, uh, is frightening and it does prevent a lot of people from, from speaking up. Uh, but if you're in a position to, if you're, if you're sort of immune to, to being canceled for whatever reason, you're self-employed or, or, you know, in my case, I wasn't working at that time, which is honestly one of the reasons why I felt like I had to speak up because I knew that I didn't have staff relying on me. I didn't have, um, you know, uh, like there were, there were really no consequences. And so I thought I, I kind of have to, because if I don't, who else will, right? Yeah. Okay. I want to touch on something you'd mentioned just, just right now is the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the statement of principles, right? So you keep hearing it or you kept hearing it from the liberals in their last, um, you know, their last mandate. It was like, oh, diversity is our strength. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. There's like certain key phrases like that, that, that was your response to all this. Now I hear that again. And I'm gonna I'm gonna just give this little caveat. Like I I think they re- reacted very slowly. I think once they did started reacting, they were okay. Like during this whole COVID thing, mm-hmm. and now I think again they're slipping back. And I mean, obviously there, there was there was issues. We can get it all. I don't want to get into the weeds of all of the. But like I said, I think they were okay. I don't think they were fantastic, but I think they're okay. I think some of the provincial leaders were really good, but you kept hearing this one phrase from, like all the health ministers. Anyone who is speaking, you know, like either be it Trudeau or Freeland, you know, science-based evidence, science-based evidence. And it was kind of like mm-hmm. diversity is our strength. And it's like, I don't mind people saying variations of that. And like, yes, I, I want them to use science. But when I keep hearing that same phrase over and over and over, and it, they don't tell you what, they just say, this is what we're using, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, no one can, like, oh, if they give me the big details of this is this virus study and that, okay, no one's going to understand that. But a little bit more than science-based evidence, like, right? You know, like, yeah, exactly. And and given that you know what we've we've been through in the last number of years, where where people are all jumping on bandwagons, that you know when you scratch beneath the surface a little bit, you kind of go, well, <laughs> that isn't what it really means. Yeah. Uh, and and maybe you people have no concept of evidence in some circumstances, but uh, or you're, you know it's it's very um, one-sided. You know, the um, we can get into this topic too, but all the um, the all the gender stuff too, and uh-huh. and if you speak out against that, I mean that is the science that you can't uh-huh. possibly have, and it's all kind of um, you know there's a lot of science that's very questionable, which a lot of people are saying this is the science. So so then when they when they make those kinds of proclamations as you just mentioned, you, you if you've been following any of this stuff, you're naturally going to be a little bit skeptical about what it is they're relying on. So uh, it's unfortunate in a way because it makes us all less. Um, you know, trusting of true expertise on things, but at the same time, you know, we've we've all kind of learned that when people claim to be experts, they don't necessarily um, they they're they're not uh, immune to to um, ideology and to being sucked into certain ways of thinking. Okay, that's and I, I've spoken to a couple of people about this, and I think that's like right now, especially okay, like with everything that's going on with COVID, with everything that's going on with like yo. Oh, you can get a million different interpretations of the same graph, right? Mm-hmm. The Academy did this to itself. Uh, yeah. The the press has done it to itself, and and you know to some, you know to a decent part, the governments, all governments are doing this to themselves, and people don't have a trust and expertise anymore, mm-hmm. and, or they only trust 
experts that say what they want to say, right? And it's just, we don't know who to believe. Like, we don't know, you know, um, oh, Sweden's doing a great job. Okay, yeah, compared to some other places, but if you compare it to the other Scandinavian countries, it's doing awful, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the U.S. has tested more people than any other country. Yes, numerically, but if you look at per capita, they're at like less than half a percent. You know, like it's, you know, like what do you trust, right? It's right, and yeah. Uh, well, that's been the frustrating thing throughout this whole this whole crisis is. Uh-huh. You know, you, you want, uh, and, and this, you know, I can't really blame anybody for this. None of us, it's a novel virus. So we're all kind of um, operating on limited and constantly changing information. And of course, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, but I, I want to hear it all. I've been, I've been right. absorbing it all from all sides and I can have my own conclusions on it, uh, which change too, as I see new evidence. But, but it's been, I think, um, extremely hard for everybody because, you know, you keep hearing like, well, if we could have herd immunity, okay, but well, that sounds great, except maybe people aren't actually going to be immune after they have it the first time. So, um, you know, you can't reconcile all of that. We're also comparing apples to oranges in terms of how different countries record their death figures. Um, same thing with Sweden, you know, they're, with their approach, it would seem that they would likely have a greater number of deaths up front. So maybe you really can't analyze it mm-hmm. properly until you've been six months or a year through the process. So uh, it, it's frustrating for everybody. Um, and we're making radical changes in our world right now without having all of that evidence. And so I think I think you're right that the governments have, have by and large tried to do what they think is the right thing. There's been a lot of public pressure for them to do mm-hmm. these things. But that in itself is kind of... Uh, to me a little bit disturbing and shocking too is how 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 quickly people are willing to throw away whatever freedoms that they have uh for safety uh without even knowing how how virulent this thing is okay staying on that okay like i said i'm a huge proponent (laughs) of civil liberties you know like enlightenment values but at the same time i say that i that citizens okay whatever citizens residents if you live in that country Right. Yes, you have the rights that the, your that the, your government should not take away from you, and your government should defend your rights so that no one other citizen can take away, take your rights away from you. Right. That's. I don't think we'll disagree with that. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same point, you have an obligation to the state. Now, uh, this thing was mismanaged from the start, and granted, this is all hindsight and whatever. Like, oh, I think what we should have done is what Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan did. And if there was a lack of masks, ventilators, whatever, right? If we weren't sure, because like, no one knew how this was going to go, right? But if if the government came out and said from day one, look, we need to do this, this, and this, it's going to take us, you know, four weeks to ramp up production on masks and ventilators and tests. For four weeks, we're going to ask you to stay at home. You know, we'll we'll figure out an economic package, whatever. Like if they were upfront and straightforward and they gave you a choice, like this is what we're going to do. And we're asking you for this for four weeks because of this, this, this and this. Mm-hmm. And these countries are doing this and they've done well. Right. Like I said, I, I think most people would say, OK, you know what? They're not forcing you to. They're not doing it. They're asking you and they're giving you logical mm-hmm. explanations. Right, right. Exactly. I think people would have gone along with that. Mm-hmm. But now, OK, you know, and I think by and large in Canada, most people are, you know, like I go out for walks, you know, everyone I see, like if you're on the sidewalk, one person will go out on the street, one person will, you know, like, mm-hmm. 
and and we're not getting harassed by the police. We're not. So I think by and large it's working okay. But in some places they're actually going out and you know forcing the authorities to take drastic steps. Right. Which I mean I think yes you should have the right to protest, but you know what wear a mask and stand six feet apart, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then the authorities shouldn't come in. You know, fine they're taking their steps, right? So give them that leeway. It's like I said, we have to find a happy medium. Like you can't just throw everything away, but at the same time, you have to have some responsibility to everyone else. Like I, like I think you have to find a happy medium there. Right, right. Well, I think you said it right at the outset. And and if you can convince people that you know the, these measures are important for all of us, um, I, I honestly think that uh, that was probably all you needed to do because. Uh, most people were falling in line voluntarily before the governments even started locking down, at least here in Canada. Um, already people were working from home. They were not, um, you know, they were canceling their vacations. They were, um, you know, they were largely socially distancing. And, and you know, you want to provide people with with best information that you have and let them make informed decisions. But when you start getting then into, um, you know, going from this is what you should do to this is what you must do and we're going to start issuing tickets if you uh, step out of line, um, you know, then you start to lose the public support for what you're trying to do as well. And then you get the resistance building up. And that, you know, um, I mean, I think most people can understand when there's an external threat that they have to rally around. Even if you're a libertarian, you know, you, you recognize that, Okay. The, under these circumstances, um, we we do need to work together. But it, it comes down to: should you be forced by the state, and and uh, does the state have you know the uh, the ability to honestly do all the necessarily necessary balancing that's required to to manage the situation properly? Uh, and that's kind of where I'm where I'm sitting at right now. Is I, I'm I'm certainly cooperative with the idea of of staying home. We've quarantined ourselves. When my son came back from the states, we didn't go anywhere for two weeks. Um, but when you start seeing that police are out there giving people tickets for you know ridiculous amounts of money for taking their kids rollerblading in an empty parking lot, you know this isn't helpful. This is not no. the kind of thing that's gonna that's gonna get people win the hearts and minds of people to cooperate. So I mean, okay, like Montreal. Uh- Mount Royal Park. So, you know, like if you've ever been to Montreal, the mountain in the middle of the city, it's one giant green space, right? Mm-hmm. There's There are plenty of places there where you can go and, you know, there's plenty of trails you can walk on. You can avoid people. You don't need to, you know, obviously I'm not talking about running a marathon through the mountain or something like that, right? With thousands of people. But like if you live in the city, there's plenty of places on the mountain where you can go, but like, oh no, you, you can't go there because you're going to get a ticket, right? Uh, I heard about something. It was like local radio station, Montreal, a dad was out with his son and they're throwing a softball in the park across from his house and he got a ticket for that. I'm like, mm-hmm. like you said, no, that let's treat people like adults say, this is what you need to do. And most people are doing that, right? Okay. Yes. If you come up and there's 50 people having a big barbecue and they're, you know, all like dancing and hugging or whatever. Okay. Yeah, fine. That, that's wrong. Like mm-hmm. you, you can go yeah. stop that. That's understandable. But like, you know, a parent, playing with their child and, and even if they're not six feet apart like you know they live in the same house they're you know they're just together like it, it, that shouldn't mm-hmm. matter you know like yeah well you start to see you know these are the kinds of things we've seen all through history and we keep seeing them and, and i don't think people change all that much but when you start giving some people some power uh some of them abuse it and uh unfortunately i think you, you see that when uh, you know i'm i'm usually a very big uh supporter of of police and the rule of law and all that sort of thing but um, when you start to see that uh, 
you know, they're um, not exercising, I think, appropriate discretion with some of these things. Uh, you start to think, okay, well, you're just getting a little bit power hungry. And same, same thing with uh, you're hearing from the governors in the states, like uh, the Michigan governor telling people they can't buy seeds or whatever. You oh, know, it's I just know. this is unnecessary. Okay, and, and it's like okay, the, I'm not a fan of Trudeau's. Like I, 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 I cut him down all the time, and you know, I've I've had the misfortune of actually having met the guy a couple of times. So yeah, the, the what, hypocrite. I, okay, yes, okay, the hypocritical thing on Easter weekend, right? Uh huh. No. Within some reason, okay, the guy wanted to spend some time with his kids. I get that, right? But don't make such a big show about don't go with your family here. Okay, you know what? If you've been at home for two weeks and your family's been at home for two weeks and you know you're like an hour or so apart and you want to you're driving to each other, you're not going anywhere else. You're going from point A to point B, and both of you being healthy for two weeks, I think it's okay on a weekend like Easter to go have a dinner together. Like I you know, okay, fine. Some people are going to hear this and go, oh my God, you're going to spread the disease, whatever. But, you know, like, you know, I know right. people are, could be asymptomatic, but if it's been two weeks or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but once he's made all that thing, and then, I mean, the Quebec government too also shut down that whole Udoe region. They said, don't come here. Right. So he specifically went to a place that was shut down by the Quebec government. Right. You know, when he makes a big show of don't do this, don't do that, it's like, okay. Right. If you're going to be a leader, you've got to lead by example. And, and, uh, and he's, he's been falling down on that a little bit for sure. Um, but anyway, the, 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 I, I guess because I work with, um, an organization that's constantly on guard for government overreach, my, my spidey senses have been tingling a lot through all of this too. And, and I, we get concerned about the lack of consideration of, um, of other issues too. Like there's a balancing act that has to happen. As we, we have just shut down an entirely uh, complex interwoven society and, and the government's making decisions about uh, what are essential businesses and what aren't. And it's all, you know, fairly arbitrary. Um, you know, why are, why are like marijuana shops left yeah, yeah, yeah. open? But you know, like, okay, but I, I got sorry. I got to laugh. Cause there was this, <laughs> this video with this Amazon worker. And I, and I feel really sorry for this guy. Cause I mean, these guys have been working hard, right? From where else he's like, it's like, ladies, Dildos are not an essential item. <laughs> well, certainly not if you're going to Walmart, I guess, right? And uh, and they're blocking off certain sections. But yeah, I guess if you're buying them from Amazon, they are. I uh, know it's just crazy. Um, and we need to be starting to talk about the impacts on other aspects of society. I mean, there isn't just this one thing. There are, there are people right now. Um, the hospitals are sitting largely below capacity, from what I'm hearing, and uh, people are are not getting cancer treatments or other um, mm-hmm. surgeries or, or treatment that they might need. So th- the balancing act that one would expect a government to do when taking such a, uh, um, you know, such a, well, I mean, it's just, it's incomparable that w- what we've just done, we've just shut down our society, but you've got to, you got to balance that, especially when you're taking away people's freedoms to even step outside their houses and go in and do, you know, normal things. So, um, I'm not hearing much of that yet. And that's the problem when, you know, government is so big, it's very hard for them to turn on a dime and, and readjust things. Uh, I think they get a lot more buy-in if, as you said earlier, they said, okay, it's for this discrete period of time. Um, these are the things that we're going to do to to um, try and eradicate it. We want you to buy in on this. And and then we'll, we'll, we'll start opening things up again. Anyway, it's just not, uh, it's not happening. Um, yeah. Okay. And the, the overreach thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And we talked earlier and, you know, like via email about this, the, the, the new proposed law about the misinformation. The, that was, that's been my biggest beef with the liberals. Like, okay, 
M103 granted it's a motion, but if you read the, the wording of it and yeah. if you read the report that came out afterwards, there's no clear definition of Islamophobia and there, there's, you know, I'm just afraid about legislation that's going to, they campaigned like in their, in their mandate was our, like they said that they wanted to introduce harsher hate speech laws on social media, right? <laughs> and then you had that guy talking earlier about the social media controls just before like COVID breakout broke out. Mm -hmm. Now they're talk considering like banning misinformation. Two weeks ago, misinformation would have been that there's a good chance that not that the Chinese made this and purposely use it as a bioweapon, but that they were working on it in the lab, like they were studying it mm -hmm. and escaped. Now I'm not saying that that definitively happened, but there's some indications that that happened. Right. So if I'm to discuss that, am I spreading misinformation? Am I going to be silenced by the government? Like, I, like this is right. the overreach that I really like this more to me than the government saying, please stay home. This is what mm -hmm. bugs me. Right. I agree. And, uh, you know, it's it, it follows a pattern. Um, and that's why I think we always have to be concerned. You know, never, never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, yeah. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> so we've already had these trends in place for values tests from this government. And, um, you know, you can't get uh, a summer job grant if you don't check a box saying that you agree with something completely outside of you know, any relevance to to the program. Um the statement of principles kind of thing uh, is, you know, being replicated throughout society. We all have to agree to the same orthodoxy. Uh, uh, we're the kinds of cases that we have at the Justice Center too, or um, foster parents, for example, if they don't uh, uh, share the exact views of of the social workers, then they're not going to get to be foster parents. And so we have this orthodoxy that's being imposed all around, and. I think that is what feeds into this government's desire to want to control the the media narrative too. It's much easier if we all kind of agree on the same things and only hear the same information. But um, you know, it's it's very dangerous when you start having governments that want to control the press. It's uh, alarm bells should definitely be going off. We're not quite to the point of being China with the state media, but it's the same path. And so. Um, taking advantage of a crisis to try and, and again, slip in this idea that certain information should not be heard, that the internet should be controlled. Um, it, it's just, it's very dangerous. So they've been, you know, they've been floating these ideas. People have been pushing back. They seem to back off again. And then, and then sure enough, in the middle of a crisis, they, they floated again. So. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, again, I, I've spoken about this book a lot. Um, it's uh, Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Roach. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read it. I haven't read that one yet. Okay, it's, uh, I mean, like, he was really prescient, but he was talking about stuff in the 90s, so the religious right in the 90s, and mm -hmm. then he talked about the, the fatwa against Rushdie in 89. Um, but he called it the, the humanitarian attack on liberal science, and when he says liberal science, he means the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And this is what this is, right? Like, oh, well, we want to protect people's lives, so we'll stop misinformation um, about coronavirus. Now I understand someone like that, uh, what the, what the guy hell's the guy's name Mercola he's a mm -hmm. he's a snake oil salesman he's like yes you know inhale peroxide that will help you fight coronavirus yeah yeah. yeah yeah no don't inhale peroxide like please don't like it's going to damage your lungs you know like okay if that guy's selling that that guy's you have legal recourse already to put a, put a stop to him right you can do that but you don't need to give the government powers to shut down speech and they and they couch it in that language like we're going to be anti-racist. We're going to fight misinformation. We're going to, you know, don't you want to fight extremism? Don't you want to fight Nazis? Don't you want to uh, mm -hmm. fight whatever? And it's that humanitarian threat. And the liberals are really good at that. 
Yeah. And when I say when I say when I say the liberals, I mean the Liberal Party of Canada. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Right. Right. Um, You know, but it comes from both sides too. I mean, you you do see that uh, uh, there's this desire to kind of um, curtail that messy freedom, right? That uh, is uncomfortable. I think to to both ends of the spectrum, they want to have control over. Uh, over people and what they what they're allowed to say and think and and you know you, there's there's this very sort of sweet spot right in the middle that's constantly being pressed from both sides and and it's oh, yeah. really hard to protect it right oh, yeah. don't don't get me wrong there is there is a you know the the right wing like I was specifically in Canada speaking about the liberal government because yeah, they're the ones yeah. in power okay mm-hmm. but like yeah there is a definite right wing I mean look Trump calling the, the media fake news which you know I I I I think the term I agree with the best is this guy Michael Malice he says you know it's the media is the mainstream media is factual, but it's not truthful. <laughs> like, you know, like it's um, so like the whole Trump fake news thing, um, him threatening reporters that that's not, you know, that's flies right in the face of the First Amendment, like especially the threatening. Right. So, yeah, they're there. You know, people like Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk in the States, like they're right wing nuts. <laughs> you know, they're no better than the, the social justice idiots. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like. But yeah, no, the, I mean, like the government overreach in Canada, I was kind of focusing on the liberals because that's who's in power right now. And in the States, I think they've got a double whammy because they've got Trump in power and then they've got all these people bringing in this kind of stuff. Like Washington State has got an office of diversity. Um, I hate giving out this number, but I think at the last count that I saw was 16 states, K through 12 are teaching critical race theory. Oh, or they've I got know, criti- they've I got know. critical race theory going through their uh, curriculum. We've got it in three provinces in Canada, as far as I can tell. Um, so yeah, I mean, like in the states, I think you're getting it from both ends. Here, I think we have that because the government is left leaning. This stuff comes from the left, right? It's not liberal, but it comes from the left, and it's you know it's infused our government, it's infusing everything. So I think we're getting it from one side, and the states are getting it from both. But yeah, like, you got to be careful about attacks from both sides and it's uh it's that keith poem right the second coming like oh uh, you know the the center cannot hold right right (laughs) oh i know uh but it has to i mean uh otherwise uh, you know it all falls apart right so um and so i that's why i think it's really important that um more and more people try and and take a stand uh however uncomfortable that is against against these things uh, so after I finished with this stop stop thing, um, then I just I joined the Justice Center because it was a natural fit to um, you know, move on to fighting for freedoms there. And uh, you know we're just going back to what's being taught in the schools. One of the first pieces that I got when I joined last summer was this one in Ottawa with the school um, teaching grade one children that boys and girls don't. It's kind of insidious and and uh, and pervasive as well. Yeah, I mean okay, and that like. Again, that's another one of these things. Like, oh my God, how you know? Don't you want to, their, their right to exist, your trans people's right to exist? Mm-hmm. Teaching that, you know, if the kids at that age, like you said, like you know, maybe teach them. Obviously, you can't teach you know, kindergarten kids biology, but you can talk about you know, men and women, right? Like mommies and daddies or whatever. Like you can you can give a basic outline, and then you can build off of that if you want to teach it to kids. Like I sure, you know, and you can suggest to kids yeah. that you know, not everybody. Not everybody is going to be uh, yeah. be the same, and and so we should yeah. be tolerant and and accepting and and kind, and you can teach not to bully. You know, you can teach all those yeah. kinds of things without undermining the entire framework on which uh, you know <laughs> everything yeah, but, is built, right? But then they but they put in that overreach there as well, right? Especially in Ontario. I mean, I don't know. Like I I know this one case, and it's extreme, but I've heard of a couple other ones, small ones. But the one case I heard about was autistic kid in kindergarten. 
walks out of, I think it was a boy who walked out of the girls' washroom. There's a substitute teacher in that day or something like that. She looked at the kids and, oh, you know, you know, so do your, you know, what are your, do your mommy and daddy think it's okay that you're a girl? And he's like, or no, did you tell your mommy and daddy that you're a girl? Something along those lines. He's like, no, I wouldn't. They'd get mad if I said that. Kid was taken away, spent, I think, two or three days with like child protective services until everything was all resolved. And it's like, okay, no, the kid, the kid wasn't trying to transition, but they've given schools the power now where they decide, Oh, this kid wants to transition. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's okay. You know what? If the kid wants to, if, if it's a boy and they want to wear dresses, let them wear dresses. Exactly. Right? Yeah. If it's a girl and they want to, you know, dress like a boy, let them dress like a boy. You don't have to say, Oh, you're a boy, you're a girl, you're whatever. Like you're, yeah. You know, that's what you want to do, do it. And when you're older, decide what you want to do. Like you, you can support them without having to, I, mean, I don't know. Like I thought, it, I thought I could fly when I was a little kid for Christ's sakes. Like, I know. <laughs> well, and, and it actually puts everybody back into very, very tiny boxes again, which is, again, it's the same kind of thing, you know, um, with, with the racism thing. You, you, you dwell on it to the point where you're actually making things more racist than they, than they were. Uh, and in the same way, you're, 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 pushing people back into very tight stereotypes of what it means to be male or female. And in fact, when, when we were already broadening those and, yeah. and why don't we just continue to broaden them and, 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 you know, uh, accept that there are some men who are more effeminate and more and women who are more masculine. Um, so, you know, this is another thing that I've been working on lately and, and commenting on is, um, uh, this idea that, you know, children inherently know whether they're, male or female inside it might be different than their body um and it isn't just gender identity it's like they're conflating that with sex now and and it's uh um so there's you're getting a lot of younger kids on a path to medicalization uh from from a very young age with parents not necessarily being involved or having any ability to to have a say on all of that uh and we've only just begun to see some of the consequences of that with with kids growing up a bit and realizing that they've made a terrible mistake in, in many cases. So this is another whole area that that is just completely, uh, you know, impacted by ideology, by people jumping on a bandwagon here without really thinking through all of the consequences. And it's quite frightening. And so um, another thing that the government uh, did recently was it passed a, or it brought in a bill on conversion therapy. Oh, God, yeah, this thing. And again, it, yeah. so- it sounds good if you right. just read the bill. Uh-huh. Right? If you, if you, it's like a paragraph long, the, the little text that they changed, right. right? So, so, so conversion therapy. Yeah. I mean, that sounds horrible. You know, you shouldn't be trying to convert people from if they, if they're same sex attracted, uh, you shouldn't be trying, you know, nobody is putting electrodes on anybody anymore and, and trying to, uh, convert them that that isn't even happening. As far as I'm aware, some people are doing Christian counseling and, and so on, which is now encapsulated by this, but that would be voluntary. People would be wanting to, to go for that. They're not being forced, mm-hmm. but all that aside, you know, um, even if you think that that even shouldn't be allowed, that what what's they snuck in was gender identity. And so, in effect, what you're saying is you now cannot have um, any sort of counseling directed to change someone's gender identity for children. So where you might have had like Ken Zucker and his um, philosophy, uh, which, by the way, was not against uh uh, transitioning children, but but he had a wait and see approach initially, just to make sure that this was in fact the right answer. Because in something like eighty five percent of cases, most kids who are questioning their gender at a young age will settle into their normal, you know, to fit with their biological body by the time they get through puberty. And oftentimes, those kids are gay. 
Um, and so what we're actually doing is getting them medicalized at an early age uh, because we're saying now with things like this conversion therapy bill that you, you can't um, yeah, you, you can't do anything to ch to challenge that. You can't, uh, um, you know, suggest to the child that maybe what they are thinking is is, uh, um, you know, that they're that they're in the wrong body is wrong, or that it, or that just give it time, and, and maybe in the end they'll they'll end up being homosexual. Okay, but so it's very but, dangerous. Yeah, and he, okay, here you set up another catch twenty two for doctors, right? Mm -hmm. If you let the kid go ahead and, oh, no, no, if you encourage them, say, yeah, yeah, you're in the wrong gender, you, you know, you should go through the surgery, you should go through all that, right? Later on, you know, the person realizes, okay, you know what? I was a mistake. I was just, you know, I was just homosexual. Can then they, can they then sue that doctor for conversion therapy because they converted them out of being gay? Well, <laughs> you know, like, They've actually put an exception right into these bills that um, uh, that medical alteration, surgery, <laughs> surgery is not included in that. So, so it's really uh, it's kind of almost forcing people. As soon as a child says that they think that they're in the wrong body, it's almost forcing the medicalization process to occur. Like it's it's really uh, uh, it's really concerning. You know, you should be allowed to be able to to take a child and and uh, to a therapist that that. Um, I mean, you can take them to, to one that wants you put, to put them on the medicalization path, but you should also be allowed to take them to one that promotes the wait and see approach and, yeah. and lets them kind of, you know, explore things a little bit until they're older. But I mean, okay, again, you know, shouldn't you wait until the body's developed? And, you know, when they say that, with the, and there, I don't think the science is anywhere near settled on this, except I think right now, you know, the preponderance of the evidence would say you wait until the body Develop. There's no way I can see them saying, "Oh, the science is settled." And I mean, I've heard people saying that, "Oh, don't worry, you can stop them for, once you stop them from taking the hormone blockers. Everything will go back to normal." Like, uh, no, no, no. I mean, you, if you start that prepubescent, like I, I saw this article the other day, and it, I mean, it maybe wanted to throw up. It was uh, her daughter transitioned into a boy, whatever. That, that's not the part, okay? But and she was like, the daughter was like 15 years old, like, "Oh, my trans boy is is now gone through menopause." Yes. I'm like, yes, I saw that too. I, I, I'm sorry. Like, if, if you know, if, what, what, if, if you, it's not whatever makes you happy, but like, yo, know, I hope that girl or that boy now, whatever, like, has a good life and everything's okay. But at that young, like, just think, like, you know, like, you know, oh, my, my, 50, my 15 year old boy went through menopause. It's like, okay, yeah. You know, you're admitting, like, from now on, like, they are never going to have children. What if 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, they want to actually, yes, they can adopt or whatever, but they want to have their own child. It's, it's not mm -hmm. going to happen, right? Right. Well, there are some people speaking out against this. And I, and, and I think that, uh, again, this is why you don't want to have some sort of imposed orthodoxy, because there are real consequences to people and only hearing one side of things. Um, you have to be able to, to hear all the perspectives. And as much as the activists like to shut them down, uh, some people have been very courageously speaking up. And um, so parents whose kids are what you would call um, experiencing a rapid onset gender dysphoria, where they were never, ever... Uh, um, experiencing any sort of dysphoria uh, until they got to be, you know, in an environment where there were other kids that were that were transitioning. So, um, so those parents are starting to speak out, usually anonymously now, um, but also those who are detransitioning, the ones that have gone through the process of either socially or medically transitioning, and are now in probably their twenties and are looking back and wishing that they that they hadn't. It didn't actually solve the problems that it was intended to solve. So you need to hear those voices. And it's not to say that there aren't some cases that are appropriately handled by uh, by a transition, but it's just that when when you get an orthodoxy 
in place and everybody is only hearing one side, um, there there will be people who are swept up in that and uh, will have these life-altering consequences as children that they might not have had and that and that were probably unnecessary if they were just going to grow up to be to be gay. I mean, they're they're um, the conversion, the real conversion here. I fear is of gay children being converted yeah. through this process. And I, and, and a lot of, uh, you know, this is why they're starting to become, and I'm not, you know, active in this area. So, uh, but from what I'm reading, the LGBs uh, are, are in some ways starting to split from the T's in some areas because the, the activism of the trans is, is actually harming in some cases, the gay and lesbians. Oh, okay. I actually read something about this the other day and it's, uh, I've seen the LGB, like LGB Alliance in the UK and then, Mm-hmm. But something here recently was like, okay, it's it's actually the Q. Q comes from the queer theory, and the queer theorists are the ones you know that will say something along the lines of Pete Buttigieg isn't exactly gay because he doesn't you know even though he sleeps with mm-hmm. men, he's not gay because he doesn't embrace his queerness, right? right. This stuff comes from, and so same kind of thing. Uh, yeah, as so, all the other stuff. It's all <laughs> yeah. So like the you know the the extreme trans activists are you know using queer theory and gender theory, and it's that kind of stuff it's again this you know critical social justice and it's mm-hmm. you know so someone who's trans so, some people who are so trans are. yeah are opposed to this kind of activism too because to them that they, they just see it as not what they were all about right 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 so, no you do see quite a few of those people who are um uh speaking out themselves uh at great personal cost because yeah. you know they have they have transitioned and they're largely mm-hmm. accepted uh you know as as being of the you know the opposite gender and mm-hmm. and um they actually see this perhaps as being harmful to their to their own yeah. uh, existence, right? So, but yeah, no, this. I mean, the the control of the speech, control of everything. I mean, it's it was like you mentioned Jordan Peterson. I mean, that's that's you know, that's how I. I mean, that's how I think most people got to know him was Bill C sixteen. Mm-hmm. And I agree again. I agree with his stance on that. Um, I have some issues with. I mean, actually, I think I have a lot of issues with him aside from the C sixteen and the free speech stance. But yeah, I mean, like. The government should not compel me on how I should speak. And this idea of protected classes, like I hate that idea of protected class. Treat everyone equally. Do not discriminate any on any, you know, mm-hmm. and you can start making a list and say this list is not, you know, comprehensive, right? Because if you make a list and like, oh, that's not on the list, then I can discriminate against that. But I mean, like, you know, just saying you shouldn't discriminate against anyone and then making a separate set of laws. Like I'll, I'll, there's one case that I, I, I don't know all the details and it's, again, shows the hypocrisy of this. I think it was in Calgary or it was in Edmonton. It was a native woman who was holding up a sign saying, kill white people or kill white men. And she wasn't charged with a hate crime. She was told, they, they, were, they were told that that's not a hate crime. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but, you know, because white is not a protected class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. But right. it shouldn't be based on protected class. It should be based on, uh, are you discriminating against someone based on their race or religion, their sex, their gender, their you know, sexual uh like, like sexual preference what you know whatever right like are you prejudicing are you prejudicial you know prejudicial against someone based on something that they can't mm-hmm. really control like i mean like racial in terms of jobs or in yeah. terms of jo- hiring and that sort of thing okay that's fine um you know you shouldn't be you, you shouldn't be choosing somebody or choosing against somebody just because of their immutable qualities but then you get into some tricky stuff like uh with with gender identity and self-identification you know, when people can opt into categories, they aren't they aren't so immutable anymore. Uh, then it, it makes that whole scheme kind of yeah. questionable, right? But I mean, also like, um, okay, yo, yo, I, I'm a guy, I'm 
full beard, whatever. Like if I decided tomorrow that, you know what, I'm a woman or whatever, like I'm, I'm changing my gender. People who've known me my whole life, for me that I then get upset if they say he or him and, you know, they slip. I shouldn't be able to take them to court for a hate crime for something like that. I mean, yes, people should try to address you the way you want to be addressed all that something new like this you have to give some allowances you can't just expect it to like yo like if you one day say i know what people are gonna say oh it just doesn't happen one day but i mean at one point or another you're gonna let people know that from now on i you know i was x now i'm y and some people will go back to saying x every now and then and you have to live with it i guess i don't know yeah right and uh, you know compelled speech is uh, yeah. uh you know it's one of those lines that governments ought not to be crossing you shouldn't be telling people what they have to say it's bad enough to tell them that they can't say something it's even worse to tell them what they have to say Um, you're you know you're being forced to utter things that uh, that you don't agree with and I think this is this is really proving to be um, quite a controversy as between um, some feminists and um, you know and and the trans activists on this point as well Um, and it's been it's been interesting to to watch it from afar but it it has to be resolved in some way that I mean I I view it as it's, it's a battle of of rights and the gender identity piece is akin to kind of a, I'm sort of working this out in my own mind, but kind of a, almost a religious freedom, you know, to, to, to view yourself the way that you want to be viewed. Okay, that's fine. But, you know, you have that freedom, but you can't necessarily force somebody else to have that same view, right? So, yeah. I mean, okay, the, the Jessica Yaniv thing, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I read the whole, okay, I'm not a lawyer, so maybe there's like, like some, probably there is a lot of nuance that I missed, but I read the whole decision. Mm-hmm. And at one point, uh, the the justice, whoever wrote it, talks about uh, the OJ case, right? And in that one, they actually think they did like religious freedom versus trans rights. And people based on their religious freedom said, okay, well, you know, according to my religious beliefs, I don't want to do this. And the trans rights trump the religious beliefs. Now, yeah. now, I think there are certain times when you should be able to look at that, right? Like I, my right to say, like, if I'm a private citizen, do I have a right to say, no, I don't want to offer that service, right? Mm-hmm. You can have that discussion. Once you get the government trying to decide, like weighing individual rights of individual people, I think that's when you get the authoritarian stuff happening because, you know, it, it's a really, really fine balancing act, you know? Right. You don't want like, oh yeah, my religion says I get to commit a human sacrifice every month. Well, maybe that religious freedom shouldn't be allowed. You know, like, you have to look at everything there. And I mean, the Jessica Yanev case, I mean, if that doesn't go to show you how gameable that law is, mm-hmm. like, I don't know what will. Well, I think it did open up a lot of people's eyes to to the, you know, when you were talking about it, when Jordan Peterson first started talking about it and others, um, it, it was sort of academic at that point. You know, people were like, well, how can you just not be nice and, and just use the pronouns that people want to use and so on? And they hadn't thought through all the consequences. And some people could see it, you know, for what it was likely to become. But um, but the Aniv case did, uh, uh, I think, break it in, bring, bring it into sharp relief, right? That, yeah. uh, you know, it, this is what it means. It means that people can... There's no gatekeeper anymore. People can just say what they want, and um, based on their beliefs, they can compel uh, they they can compel you to uh, you know to treat them the way that they um, that they perceive. And and even if so, so you end up in this in this unfortunate conflict between sex based rights and. Uh, gender identity, which again wasn't well thought through. There have been people trying to get the gender-based analysis. You mentioned it earlier that the government wants a gender-based analysis now for every new law that's passed. Well, where was the gender-based analysis on C16? Because that that's a huge issue. You're you're telling women have sex-based rights under the law, and you know I'm um, 
and, and there's a reason for it, right? There's yeah. because because women have uh, historically been more susceptible to to rape and sexual violence and that sort of thing. So um, so they get to have their own spaces for certain things. Now uh, you know there's a whole uh, argument about how far that should extend, and and uh, you know feminist views on on sex based rights may go a little far sometimes. But um, in this instance. I have some sympathy for the for the radical feminists who are saying, "Wait a minute, we have these we have these rights, and if you can just identify in to have to sex based rights, well, um, it makes a mockery of the whole thing. We 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 then don't have sex based rights because we can't be alone in our change rooms as female bodied individuals and be safe from somebody who's identified as female, but continues to have the male body right or, or you have or you have a rape shelter that gets defunded right exactly exactly you know? that's yeah. just uh you know we're starting to see the consequences of all of this play out in very ugly yeah. ways now and we haven't really figured out a way to resolve it yet and and uh and we're gonna have to um so i you know i think that you have to uh, to the, ex- the extent that that there's a conflict between the gender identity and the sex-based rights. I think that the sex-based rights have to have to take precedence. Yeah, uh, uh, but all, okay. Also, like right now, right? Okay, I, I, I don't know if it was last year, or the year before, where Stats Canada stopped taking um, sex, but they used your gen- like how you identify as your gender as like you know, that's what they were using for their metric, right? Right. Uh, um, so with COVID, men are affected more than women. So what? If I identify as a woman now, do I have a better chance? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, like it makes no sense. Like, there has to be a point with that. And, okay, like our passport as well. If you want to have, you know, a non-binary or whatever, no gender identity on your passport, go right ahead. I don't care. But you have to do, then do realize that, let's say you want to go visit whatever. You're flying through Dubai, right? Well, you're going somewhere and you're flying through Dubai. You can't go into Dubai because if they see that, they'll probably arrest you. Mm-hmm. You know? Like... You have, like, it's great for the government to do that, but you know, like you said, the unintended consequences, like, oh, well, your flight got diverted because of a, of whatever you're in Dubai now, you know, you try to leave the airport, you're arrested. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I know that's, uh, we, we've been, maybe it's because we haven't had crises of great import that we've, um, that have kind of brought harsher reality into focus for us. Maybe, maybe the pandemic will help. I know James uh, Lindsay doesn't uh, think that it's, it's going to let up. It'll just carry on uh, even worse afterwards. I saw some of his stuff on that, but uh, you kind of hope that people start to just get a little bit away from some of the silliness, but um, you know, we, the differences between male and females in terms of, of um, the impacts of drugs, right? We're starting to realize that maybe women respond differently to certain drugs than men. And when you then start to say, well, okay, so there really isn't uh, male or female and, and that there are, again, consequences mm. to, to that, that, that are going to play out in the medical field. So, um, yeah, it's, or, I mean, even the police thing, like the police have to do it, like how the person identifies. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, if you're looking for someone and they look female, and you don't know how they identify because you haven't spoken to that person. Mm-hmm. Okay, yo, a female suspect, and the guy's uh, and the person says no, I identify as a male. Are the police now responsible for committing a hate crime? Because technically, under C sixteen, that's a hate crime, right? Or I mean, I, I don't know the law well enough to say that. I think they give you some leeway there, but you know, like right. Well, and in fact, they have been starting to record statistics of 
of crimes uh, based on identification. So you're going to see that women are now committing more sexual assaults than they ever have um, based on that. So, uh, yeah, we haven't thought all of this all of this all the way through. Oh, no. sure. It's, it's uh, again, like bring dogma into government. Like it's, it's that, okay, you have to think it this way, right? It's this is what it is. This is the science-based evidence and this is what you're going to listen to. And it's, you know, this is the party line and it's, you know, whatever, go, is it room 101? You know, there are five lights, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Um, I don't know if you got anything else you want to talk about or if there's anything you want to discuss, uh, things you're working on, let people know where they can find you. I mean, I don't want to keep you too long. Yeah, no, it was fun. We were sort of far uh, wide ranging there. I'm not sure we solved all the, all the issues, but we certainly jumped around and and touched on a bunch anyway. (laughs) Um, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just encourage people, uh, you know, there are lots of people out there talking about the, uh, critical theory and its impact on, uh, on, on our lives. And I, I do encourage people to speak out. Um, you know, the, I'll just give you an example, the, the mom in the case that uh, I was talking about with the little girl up in Ottawa, who's was told that, uh, that after she identified as strongly as a girl that she was told girls don't exist. Um, that mom used that as a stepping stone to start uh, a website, on um, on on gender identity and and a resource for parents who were finding that uh, that all of this stuff was was concerning to them uh, the rapid onset gender dysphoria the um, things that were being taught in school and so on so individuals can make a difference when and it happens when we get personally impacted often but I do encourage people to where they can to stand up against um, against this stuff and speak out and and you know hopefully we can turn the tide together if we if we don't just roll over and let it wash over us maybe we can we can have an impact um in terms of where to find me i'm on twitter at uh, ldbildy b-i-l-d-y um and you can reach me at the justice center as well we've got some interesting cases there if people are finding that you know the uh, current crisis is causing infringements of their freedoms in ways that they think are are inappropriate you can reach out to us there um, you know, if, if you're if you're getting ticketed or um, um, sort of being told that you can't gather in ways that are socially distancing, but um, you know that someone has decided. So, for example, church services. We've had, uh, and this is going to be an issue for Ramadan as well coming up. Um, I think a lot of churches have been trying to find ways to fulfill the requirements, but still get their communities together, maybe in parking lots, everybody staying in their car, that kind of thing. And, and, and that's getting shut down. So, so I just encourage people, if you're, if you're finding that your freedoms are being infringed in ways that are, um, you think oppressive and not justified, then let us know and we'll see if we can, we can help you out. Yeah. And that church thing, like just just leave off on that. I mean, come on. Okay. I'm not religious, whatever, but they found a way to practice their faith they're in their cars they're not rea- you know they're not interacting with anyone exactly like that should be all right like the police should have better things to do than to go ticket all those people like it's it's ridiculous anyways thank you very much for coming on that and, was fun yeah thanks and thanks, thanks everyone for for, yeah oh, please thank you thanks everyone for listening